then? Morley. Where shall I put it? Down your end. A bit chilly this morning? Still, we mustn't complain. That was no devil. She spoke with her own voice, the voice of a frustrated woman. That's enough. Do not be so easily deceived. The very innocence is a sham. A mask of deceit devised by the cunning of Satan. Be assured, the fiend is silently lurking in some hidden recess of her body. <coughs> this medical examination will reveal it, and then we shall do that. Be advised that the following podcast can and will contain spoilers. It is highly recommended that you watch both films under discussion before listening. Thank you. Welcome to episode number 28 of the Movie Club Podcast, a podcast which works kind of like a book club. Uh, We've selected a couple movies in advance. We gather a few people around the internet at our little virtual table, and we talk about these movies for a little while. We're right in the middle of October right now, so uh, this, I guess you could consider to be our horror episode, but... Breaking with what is maybe the normal theme of, of Halloween with ghosts and ghouls, we're, we're going to instead settle with psychological moral horror. So we're just going to play things a little differently here. Uh, we have Ken Russell's 1971 political Christian period piece, The Devils. And we have Andre Sulowski's relationship meltdown slash creature feature, possession joining me at the table uh tom clift of uh yeah the internet uh, i'm kind of all over the place but i'm on twitter at tom underscore clift and uh, i'm bob trimble uh write for row3.com as well as my own blog eternal sunshine of the logical mind and i'm at the logical mind on twitter uh, matthew price of the mammo podcast which you can find at mammo.ca uh also distributed on row three and you can also find me on twitter at Matt Movies, M-A-T-T Movies. And I am Kurt Halfyard. I'm at also at Row 3. Uh, you can often find me uh, writing for Twitch Film and on podcasts Hither and Yawn. And I can be found on Twitter at Triflick, T-R-I-F-L-I-C. Uh, so welcome, everybody. It's glad to have all of you back. I, I Bob and Price are uh, veterans, both of the most recent show uh, and others. Um, and Tom, I don't believe we've had you before, so uh, welcome. We've tried. Oh, we've tried. Yeah, <laughs> this is my first successful appearance on the podcast. Yeah, it's great to be here. That's okay. Tom, I've been on it before, but none have been successful, so... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so let's kick off with uh, Ken Russell's The Devils. Um, and so the movie is set in the mid-1600s in Loudon, France, as the Catholic Church is just coming off of a massive war with the Protestant Church. Richelieu, the, the Catholic bishop, is looking to uh, maintain his political dominance, and he tangles or at least exerts some allegations on uh, a promiscuous priest uh, in Ludon in the efforts to knock down its walls and seizes on the opportunity uh, from a particular nun uh, in a uh, 
uh, I'm going to get this wrong, but I'm going to say Ursuline convent, who has a thing for this particular bishop, or sorry, uh, is is his... Is his name Grandier, or is that his title? Um, That's his 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 name. name. Um, Urban Grandier, played by Oliver Reed. The nun is played by Vanessa Redgrave. Uh, And uh, because she has a particular sexual obsession with them, she has convinced herself or is willing to convince others that he has taken advantage of her and her fellow nuns uh, and come into the form of her as a devil. And with bombastic approach, uh, they they attempt to bring this uh, priest down uh, as he kind of finds his own purpose in life and saintliness as he undergoes his downfall. I don't know if that adequately explains the movie. There's actually quite a bit of uh, spirituality, politics, and horrific things going on. It's kind of a dense film. Uh, and I will go around the table again. And uh, yeah, tell me how you first came to this film, if this podcast uh, was the first time you saw it, whether you've seen it multiple times, and what your initial thoughts were. Go ahead, Tom. Uh, yeah, so this was the first time I'd seen the film. It's actually the first time I'd seen both of the films we're discussing today. Uh, and the version of the film I, I saw was the uncut version, I assume it's the most, the complete version of the film, I understand there were a ton of different cuts and that the film when it first came out was pretty heavily censored both in the UK and then even more so in North America and certainly the version that I saw had plenty of material that could easily have caught the eye of censors back in the day. Yeah, uh, first time for me as well, been wanting to see it for years and just never got around to it so this was a Nice kick in the butt to finally see it. I saw the 108-minute version, so I'm not sure if that's the uncut or if I missed a couple of minutes in there. Uh, certainly still enough to uh, to censor and rattle the nerves a good 40 years ago. Fantastic, though. We'll get to that, but I absolutely loved it. My, my first time as well, although I... I and I, it wasn't a movie that I was dying and dying to see for years. I certainly heard of it. Uh, and and I'm woefully uh, underserved on sort of all the early Ken Russell stuff, so I hadn't gotten to it yet, just like I haven't gotten to Sons and Mothers and a bunch of other films that I'd still like to get to. Uh, I don't know. I, I was dumb enough not to note the running time of the film I saw. It didn't seem particularly censored in the version that I saw. I saw uh, the version that was available to rent on DVD from my local video shop, but I... I, I I imagine that it's mostly intact from the from what I can see. <laughs> this is, uh, I guess, this is my third time uh, watching the film. I, I suggested the, the the film because I, I mean, it it kind of recently in the last couple of years has gotten a bit of a reemerging into popular culture because the BFI managed to get the bulk of the film and restore it. Uh, they did not put it out on Blu-ray, unfortunately, because Warner Brothers would not give them the high-def elements. They just gave them a digibeta uh, version. Warner Brothers seems to have had a hard-on for not releasing this film properly. And uh, to the best of my knowledge, outside of the um, bootleg that I have, I don't think the full uncut version exists in any legal format at the moment. I mean, I guess the one element of whether or not you you saw the 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 least censored version is when there there's a when the nuns pull down the statue of jesus and proceed to 
smother him uh, in a sexual fashion, if you will. There's this kind of zooming in, like a SCTV Dr. Tongue's uh, kind of <laughs> zoom. Um, I thought it was in there. Yep. And that, that scene is cut from most versions of the film. But anyway, I, I enjoy the heck out of the movie. It's just stunningly beautiful, and it is dense enough that it certainly stands up to multiple viewings. You can always get something new and interesting out of it each time you watch it. Yeah, well, I think I it's also really, really clear in its message, too. I mean, there there's there was no point in the movie where I was starting to wonder, what are they talking about? What background am I unaware of? I thought it was extremely clear what he was going for, uh, without being subtle in any way, shape, or fashion, which I greatly enjoyed because he absolutely went for it in, in pretty much every single scene. Uh, sorry, Matt, I cut you off there. Oh, it's okay. I just wanted to say that uh, your, Kurt, your recap description of it uh, at the, just at the top of the episode where you kind of laid out in, in like the, the plot just in point by point in my head I was like oh that's what happened <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not sure that it is I mean it's certainly as clear and unclear as kind of all Ken Russell stuff is for me which is to say that he's very much uh, somebody that strikes me as being much more in love with the images than he is with any kind of uh, interest in telling any kind of linear story. I don't think the story's particularly uh, compellingly linear. It's, it's, I think it functions better as a kind of cultural artifact than it does as a film. It's interesting that you got that different response from it, Matt, because I've seen a few other Ken Russell movies, and I totally agree with you on, on the rest of them, even though I like them. He's much more, cons- you know, concerned yeah, with I, visuals. I love and even though he is here too, but that thing makes no sense. Not a lick. Sorry, which one? <laughs> track twenty nine. Oh, I, the, I one, the one with Gary Oldman and Teresa Russell. That movie makes no sense. Anyway, we'll go back <laughs> to this. Sorry. <laughs> I, I look forward to seeing that. Um, yeah, I just seen the Lair of the White Worm recently, and I think his first movie, Billion Dollar Brain, which is somewhat straightforward. Tom, what did you think? I mean, from my perspective, I didn't really have trouble following it um, in terms of a point A to point B plot, sort of narratively what's happening. It was sort of fairly clear to me, and especially given that I understood there's a lot of, like, there's clearly a lot of history to it, and the film begins with this declaimer, this is based on real events, it all happened, which is always kind of, you're always slightly skeptical when you see that. But in terms of what was happening, I was pretty clear on. It's definitely, I do agree, very much concerned with kind of the imagery, and it's got... There are plenty of sort of hallucin, like or dream sequences, and people having visions and so on. But um, I, I was, I think I was mostly able to follow what was going on, and uh, like I think like sounds like most people, I really really liked it. Like it was completely in the sort of stuff I'm interested in, the intersection between uh, religion and politics and zealotry and how it can be used to persecute people. So yeah, I I, I dug the film. The, the thing that I, that I find very interesting uh, with this film is that a lot of it is very, well, I guess, theatrically absurd. I mean, it opens with the King of France putting on a play and the way that a lot of the dialogue is delivered, whether it's in public forums or on in, in court trials or, or whatnot. But then... If you watch uh, Oliver Reed, who is one of kind of like he's he's kind of like a big, uh, both, he both physically in stature, but also a big performer uh, and always has this kind of dominating of the screen. You actually see his performance 
become more restrained as the movie goes by, as he kind of becomes a more serene, grounded figure. At the beginning, he's this promiscuous priest who who just coldly shuts down his mistress when she announces that she's pregnant. And he gets himself in a fair bit of trouble and even confesses to almost like a death wish by all of his sexual promiscuities and and whatnot. There's a scene which is so endearing to me where he approaches these two, they almost feel like Shakespearean bit players, these two doctors as they're administering (laughs) um, some medicine to a plague victim. And they have a crocodile, like a full crocodile stuffed under the bed. And he comes in and he just has that wonderful line. What fresh lunacy is this? And they... (laughs) He grabs a crocodile and ha- proceeds to have a sword fight with the crocodile in the middle of the movie. I know on my first viewing, because it's fairly early on that that happens in the film, I, my thought was, what did I just get myself into? Um, <laughs> and the best, the best part about that is that their reaction is, hey man, that thing was expensive. <laughs> like, that's their, really, that's their concern. Hey, hey, I paid a lot of money yeah. for that crocodile. One of the things that really struck me about the film, especially in that first kind of like the first act, was just like what an absolute scumbag, like the the lead character is. Like he's not like morally ambiguous so much as just like a really sleazy, pervy, just like a really unpleasant person. And but he's not even necessarily an anti-hero because he's like he's clearly the person we're meant to be rooting for, and he absolutely represents good in this kind of political religious battle. But just as a as a human being, he's so unpleasant that I was really like fascinated by that. Yeah, I love that too. I mean, he's obviously a very flawed character with his good and bad points, and and certainly throughout the movie, you know, even tries to redeem himself for for some of the the bad things he's done in the past. But I, I love that sense of humor that pops up too. I mean, I, I mentioned before that it's very linear in many ways, but then you have these moments of absurdity when the the king is shooting the blackbirds, who are actually, I think, Protestants dressed up in these big bird costumes. Yes. And (laughs) he shoots the final one, he actually says, bye-bye, blackbird, which is absolutely silly and makes no sense, but is kind of wonderful in showing how the king has absolutely no respect for for that set of people as well. There's a lot of, I, I, I don't think this is too big a stretch to say, there's a fair amount of almost Monty Python level satirical silliness Running through, yeah. It's, I mean, apart from the fact that it's very hard to watch dead bodies get piled on a cart and not laugh. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> really, that is gold, comedy gold. There, you don't even have to be playing it for laughs. It's always funny now when they throw dead bodies on a cart. But even apart from that, like the Blackbirds and all that other stuff, there is a sense of like it's all. It almost feels like sketch comedy to some degree. Like it's and it's and it's also like the the bye bye Blackbird thing is so clearly out of time and a totally self-acknowledged anachronism about, you know, he's not, he's just talking directly to the viewers through a lot of the film. It actually hides the exceptionally effective or I think smart strategy that he's cutting that sequence, the, the fake hunt with the, with the King on one hand with Grandier's big speech where he's, really rallying the town to this real political problem that they're going to have to face. And so on one hand, you have one of the most serious scenes in the film, 
of Grandier rallying the townspeople cut with the most absurd thing. And, and it kind of gets up to the fact that where you have a lot of people's fates on one hand, and then you have the people in power that are playing games on the other. These scenes of excess and hedonism, this king is, he can just do whatever he wants. And he's so, it's that kind of like classic, effeminate, flamboyant royal figure who has so much power that he doesn't know what to do with and can just get away with anything. I think that the cross... There's a, there are a few scenes of, like, that really blunt cross-cutting. There's another scene, I think, later where... I can't remember what it's cutting to, but there's the scene of Grandier and his wife, who he's secretly married, kind of in bed. Uh, I think it, it's possibly... They're cr- cutting between that and one of the scenes of, like, sort of sexual excess. But I don't know. There are a few moments of, like, yeah, just the really stark juxtaposition in the editing... One thing that's definitely true in is certainly in every Ken Russell film that I have seen is, and you either I think you either respond, you know, favorably to this or not, but he isn't really capable of putting movies together that don't draw a lot of attention to the just the technique of like of the cuts and stuff. Like he's very bad at sort of natural coverage and natural cutting. I also believe that there's just a desire in his, in all of the films that I've seen. I've not seen his like BBC television like dance documentaries and artistic the, the, he did a lot of stuff before he started making yeah. feature films, but there's a desire at least in all the feature films that I've seen by him for just he just has a go for broke style. Yeah. And I think as his career went on, his budgets went down like I, I, the last kind of film of any size that I saw by him was probably Altered States in the early '80s, and then everything after that seemed smaller. But in The Devils, my lord, he has that huge white set. Well, the convent is crazy. It is so fantastic to see the scenes yeah. of plague with all the ugliness and makeup and vulgarity that 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 you know when someone dies of the bubonic plague against that white tiled background of, of well, the I think what of they were they were going for I mean I, all the uh, sets were done by Jer- Derek Garman and I think what they were going for was that Huxley Aldous Huxley that the, the movie's based partially off his novel said that he wanted to feel like it was you were in a, a washroom or in a bathroom so they used white tile for a great deal of the sets, and it does have that kind of you know pristine kind of clean feeling, but also really kind of grimy at times too. Like like you it's, are actually in a in a washroom stall. The well, setting but, was kind of eerie. I found like the, yeah. a lot of the, the the like the town walls and the architecture looked. I mean, I don't know what Ludon looked like in this period, but it almost looked to me like a vision of like the future, like a kind of how, like, you know, cheap films in the 60s and 70s, like, I think of something like like Woody Allen's Sleepers, depicts the future. Um, it had this, like, just very kind of unnatural, surreal vibe to it at times. I'll go film. you one further, Tom. This movie looks more like Zardoz than it looks like Tom Jones. <laughs> I was thinking, like, I know that uh, Russell did... Uh, um... He did Tommy, right? But uh, like yeah, the yeah. wall is another <laughs> film. Like there, there's this the scene with Richelieu and his his crony, the the Baron Lombardmont or something like that, and they're they're in his Catholic stronghold or whatever, and it it is a prison. Like the film was clearly shot in a prison, and it has this giant red cross. It just screams seventies rock opera <laughs> to me, even though. There's nothing in the sense um, 
otherwise to indicate that. But the set designs are big and yeah, garish. Yeah. Well, you, Rogue also directed performance, right? So there is a sense of rock theatricality that I think he's... Well, that's that's Rogue, right? Too. This is Russell. And yeah. while those oh, two, sorry, sorry. Those, no, but up. those two filmmakers are so easily confused because they both yeah, do a lot just... of the same thing. Every yeah. now and again, I catch myself doing the same thing. We haven't talked about Sister Jean uh, Vanessa Redgrave's like crazy deformed nun. And what always makes me laugh is uh, Michael Gothard's like rock star exorcist yeah. with his with his priest power gloves like I love yes that. with the john lennon glasses that guy's and the awesome. john lennon yeah. glasses the movie's so kind of going along in some sense of normalcy i mean even you know with the convulsions of vanessa redgrave and everything else until he arrives then the movie gets just nutty i, I basically Nuttier. by the time you hit the first enema <laughs> there it is. <laughs> I, I just want say... to go back to uh, to the sets just for a second because Tom, you're mentioning how it seemed like almost futuristic. Uh, I was reading a bit more about the film, and what Ken Russell was trying to do was actually create a city that, at the time, the people who lived there thought that it was a modern city. He said that whenever you see period films, it's always the crumbling walls. But they didn't. They weren't always crumbling walls. There were actual walls at some point. So we tried to build a city that would have been modern at the time and i think you're right it does actually then come across as almost futuristic as opposed to what we're used to seeing in you know renaissance era type movies or period movies and i wonder if the um if the if that reflects all the way into a lot of the people into the town because there's several scenes like during the public exorcism during the public trial where you have a lot of the like the the mid-level aristocracy witnessing it and they're kind of laughing at it and not taking it particularly seriously in in a way almost like a poser cosmopolitanness like they're they're thinking they're being more big city by treating you know like they're above it all or whatever when this you know theater uh, theater of the absurd is going on in front of them rather than being offended or horrified by that um the one thing I've, I have trouble with the movie is that I can never distinguish when it's like the baker and the the, the sort of level-headed people. There's very few of them. But it, it, the movie kind of wants to say that the city is very level-headed because it's the one place where the Catholics and the Protestants exist in a roughly equal air ratio and seem to get along. But then it then it also goes out of its way to say that everyone in this town is nuts. I, so it's very hard. Well, the, the, plague, the plague has a lot to do with that too, right? I mean, especially at the end, uh, spoiler alert, when Grandier gets burned at the, at the stake, they're all kind of cheering and whooping it up. Is you know These are people who have been living with the plague and are used to people dying all over the place that they've kind of um, almost given up caring about that's, people. That's an interesting right? point. I've never considered it that way, but I guess death would be pretty cheap. Um, yeah. But you do have you do make the point about the uh, the other set the aristocracy that sort of goes and watches these nuns kind of freaking out and are laughing and enjoying it, and that's that's a, that's a little bit different. But I, I think the you know it's based on uh, I guess you know some true events where these nuns actually were kind of a sideshow. They actually did essentially kind of perform for audiences who come in and watch them you know flail their arms and and get naked and you know have the demons exercised from them. So it actually, they almost became kind of like rock stars in a, in a very kind of small sense. So I think Ken Russell's really playing up uh, all those kind of facets. 
I think he's just predicting the rise of Cirque du Soleil. But <laughs> man, he got it pretty good then. He he almost got it perfect. Are, are they uh, are they no, ever you know going to do a Cirque du Soleil where a woman <laughs> masturbates a candle? Um... If they do, I may finally buy a ticket for Cirque du Soleil. Um, the here's here's my here's my uh, question on a, on a more serious level. Uh, um, and I don't know, Bob, you might be able to speak to this because you, you mentioned you were doing some reading about the film. But to me, when I when I said at the top that I thought it, it played more for me as a cultural artifact, I think part of what I'm talking about is that it feels the movie feels very consciously and not just in the fact that its content dictated that it would absolutely get censored. And I don't think Russell for one second <laughs> didn't think that it would. Um yeah, definitely there are scenes in the film that are, like, asking for it. Like, they are there. <laughs> for sure, for sure. And, and a fan. And I guess what I'm saying is, how much do you guys think the movie is really... I mean, it's obviously you choose to make a movie about something for a particular reason at a particular time. 1971, the UK, there has to be a fair amount of... Uh, you know, if you think about it, like, the UK is sort of lagging a little bit behind the States in terms of Summer of Love and revolution in sort of personal morality and stuff like that. And and to me, the reason it plays as a cultural artifact is because it really points up that that's a pretty cataclysmic time for people to sort of reconsider what's acceptable. Yeah, I think... And, and that's of... what the movie seems to partially be about, is this idea of, like, casting off or being crushed down by moral kind of you know, overlordism from above. Oh, for sure. I mean, it's, it's man against the establishment in a lot of ways. I mean, and that's, I think I read a quote somewhere saying that's that's kind of Ken Russell to a T, so it's almost about himself in some ways. He's always been against the establishment. But I think around that time, the British censors were, oddly enough, re pretty reasonable. They were actually considered to be fairly progressive in their views, especially one of uh, one of the lead censors, I forget his name now. But I think when they when he did see the initial cut, he was... Very, very particular about certain scenes that were just not going to cut it because that was, like I said, it was just already beyond the pale anything else that had come out around yeah. Well, this is on Wikipedia, mind you, but I believe I read that, the, that it was actually more harshly censored in the States than it was in the UK. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure if that's accurate. No, but, that's very accurate. Yeah. And this is what happened. The British censors said, well, just trim a little here and trim a little there so you're just not lingering so long on things. Like, just like very minor edits the united states when it when it uh, got exported it said remove all instances of pubic hair i think the british censors tend to take a more approach of how can we massage some things out of the film without compromising the film and i think the american censors take a more of a checklist approach we got to cut this we got to cut that and fix it however you can after we've cut all of these like sort of little things and yeah. so um, the but it's but it's the inverse in actual society. Like yeah, uh, the British censors were probably more liberal, but uh, but I feel like the British society was probably not as as forward well, or not as far along. True, that chain. we're definitely getting right into the um, new Hollywood cinema at this time in the United States and hmm. any sort of rules are gone. It, it is fascinating that The Devils was as hit as hard as it was by Warner Brothers in 1971 and then they let The Exorcist out of the gate in 73 yeah. where Well, there's, there's no pubic hair in it. Uh, yeah, but you do have yeah. a child <laughs> masturbating with a crucifix. I mean, that's... The Exorcist is quite a violent film. 
but this was a lot more sexual. And I, I you know think, what I mean? And I think that's why it gets the censorship. I think the I think you're exactly right. Yeah. The Exorcist yeah. also has kind of clearly good guys and bad guys in kind of the regular roles, and this movie is you know really going after the 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 corruption of um of the state and and uh the co-option of well, I mean, religion there's and also the, there's no in, part in the exorcist you, the priest is the good guy you know yeah, so there's, there's that, also there's it's, no it's, part of you watching regan masturbate with that crucifix where inside you're kind of like yeah all right let's get that <laughs> you know there's a certain amount of that in the devils where there's kind of like there's some pretty you know nuns gone wild stuff. But you're kind of like, all right, humpbacks, let's do it. Well, I thought the nuns was really that was just really interesting. Like the 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 Vanessa Redgrave character makes the point early in the film that like a lot of the nuns, and again, I assume there's historical basis to this, that a lot of the people who are in the the nunnery are are kind of from like upper class women who whose families didn't have quite enough money to marry them off, or they weren't attractive enough to be married off. So these women aren't necessarily pious people who really wanted to devote their life to God. They're just people who didn't really have any other options. And so when they get the chance to kind of throw the habit off and, you know, <laughs> get into this ridiculous orgy, like, you know, because they're, they're feigning being possessed by devils. And at times the film kind of blurs the line of, like, how much of this is them acting, how much of this is them maybe believing that they're possessed, how much of it is them just finally being liberate you know sexually liberated after all this repression so i yeah i thought that like the while the you know that that the sort of orgy sequence is extremely excessive and is definitely there to shock i, I it definitely kind of serves like the narrative as, as well it wasn't entirely gratuitous well i i do think that there's a pretty interesting scene and and this might be the scene that you're talking about with the cross cutting with the wedding between oliver reed's uh, Urban Grandier and 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 uh, Gemma Jones, but there's the scene where the um, like super priest, the exorcist guy, Father Barry, and the um, and the Baron have all of the nuns tied up out in the forest or whatever, and they kind of yeah. they kind of thinly say, "Okay, ladies, you are going to do this, or we are going to kill you. You either possessed, <laughs> or we will kill you right now." And it's kind of this unspoken political will being thrust on these ladies to perform the way they are. And then that, what Bob was saying earlier, where they became kind of a tourist sideshow, I believe when the king comes in with all of his people, they are coming to actually witness that sideshow because that sideshow has gotten traction even within the limited time frame. Because when you see them in the church there and everyone's going nuts... It is theatricality, and I love that the king, you know, who you think is kind of this unaware, foppish guy, he he does actually pull a pretty slick little scam on everyone as if to restate his authority above the church and in, in with where he presents the empty box as this box has a vial with the blood of Christ and, and, it, and it gives the effect that he wants and then he opens it up and it's empty – and that, I think, the actual caught in your lies, that sort of personal reaction, that's when people really go nuts. They ain't faking that. That's when everyone's mm. caught and you don't know what to do. Everyone's just embarrassed to be caught in this compromising situation. So then the, the nuns go 
abs- everyone just goes absolutely nuts. Well, yeah, and, and the, the 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 witch hunter Barre just redoubles his efforts. He just, <laughs> mm. like you said, he he just he just goes for it. Now. And He's, that's the point where the, there's a lovely scene because Oliver Reed, who's been off to petition for the town's walls to stay up and he's been acting more a politician than a priest and he comes back in and he for one minute he is undeniably the voice of reason there's this woman and she's got like crosses she's got her head shaved and she's naked and she's got crosses painted on her face and he he almost grabs her like um and calms her and gives a lovely speech and that's to me where the movie is maybe not exactly what Matt said earlier where Ken Russell just doesn't know how to tell a story. I believe that there is a there is a control of tone. It's not just throw everything at the wall and see what sticks because you do see Grandier and the way he's shot for the rest of the film. There is a serenity to his martyrdom at the end. And it's quite powerful the way they do that. Like his even his court scenes, like it's like Everyone is stuck on this road now to burning him at the stake, but he is getting closer to God in his personal journey. Yeah, I don't think uh, Russell is unable to tell a story. I don't think he really necessarily wants to or that cares wasn't, that okay. much. Okay, that wasn't what I said, but go on. <laughs> well, it, it, I think my point there is that I want to say this earlier, is that there was a quote that said that Ken Russell doesn't necessarily believe in the inherent virtue of understatement. He doesn't think that, oh, it's subtle, that must mean that it's good or it's better. He he believes in the almost the opposite. I'm going to give everything to you full bore, I'm going to concentrate on the image, and that's going to get across my point. And I think the way he does it in this movie is fantastic. Other people try it, and I don't think they get anywhere near the results that he does in this particular film. So just to, just to quickly clarify, I think I, I didn't state my point very well. I wasn't saying that he's bad at it. I was saying that inherent to his style is a sense of making you aware of his style. That's a fair statement, I think, yeah. Uh, so that's what I meant. That he when he cuts from a person to another person, it's always you're I'm always aware of the cuts. And I don't think it's it's definitely deliberate. And you're also part. aware just... of why he's doing it as well. Like he's like when he's doing those juxtapositions, it is I mean, I don't want to say like if I say it's really on the nose that sounds like I'm it's a criticism, I'd I, I loved it in this film, but it's really obvious. Like when he's juxtaposing, yeah. you know, the violence with the serenity. When he's juxtaposing, you know, Grandier's kind of St. Crispin's Day speech with the foppish king in this scene of utter excess. Like it's really clear what yeah, he's doing. He didn't, he didn't make, make any mistake of that. There's an awful lot of stuff in this movie that sort of the subtext is: I may have gone to art school. <laughs> well, again, because it's political and spiritual theater, uh, I, I believe that's part of the reason for the largely theatrical direction. Yeah. Or, and, and, and if it wasn't intentional, it was just a happy marriage of material. Like You can treat it in that way as well. Yeah, I, I don't know if it's, if it's a contemporary of this, but it feels a lot like the play Marat Saad. Which I don't know. If, I don't know if you guys are familiar with that with that nope. uh, play, but it's oh. it's a play set in a um, an insane asylum where they're putting on the life of the Marquis de Sade in the asylum, and it's just that the, again, like it, they're they're contemporaries in terms of timing. I think they're both come out of like late '60s, early '70s. Well, and and you, one tends to wonder whether or not 
because of the the martyrdom aspect of the movie, if Russell was also playing a bit on the pure image of um, the dryer passion of Joan of Arc, like the yeah. again Ludon, by virtue of its white sets and and clean sparseness of many scenes, feels a lot like that film, but only in scenes. It's certainly not like it all the way through, but there are... But certainly the image of Grandier after he's... Because the whole, the, whole, the whole... Through the whole film, he's got this very, like, he's got the moustache and this head of hair, and he's he's very... He looks he like crimps. his character. He's kind of this rash character. And then you see him later where he's been completely shaven, and he looks a lot like the the character from the, in, the, in the Joan of Arc. So I think that's... Whether that was uh, an intentional... Uh, whether that was a uh, influence Russell directly took, I, I definitely picked up on that as well. Um, now, the reason why, I, in my mind, I paired this film uh, with Possession is because they both have um, uh, women at the core of the film that are truly and utterly hysterical. Uh, like the, uh, I, we should really talk about Vanessa Redgrave's. Like it's really, it's an over-the-top performance. Uh, but again, I think it's the right performance for this movie. But it is, she is nuts with her body language and yes. her posture, and that yes. is. This was fairly. I know her. You know, she comes from a very famous acting family, but this was fairly early in her career, and she is in go for broke uh at this thing right from the first shot where you see her with um the hump and her body contorted to the side and just that image and then she's on her belly watching grandier as he leads a funeral procession early on in the film but normally she's in a nun's habit which leaves the rest of her body expressionless so she has to do everything with her physicality and her face and my lord, does she ever get it right? I, I, I find her performance very unsettling. I, maybe as a guy or as a human being, I don't know. Her performance is not sexually intimidating. It's just like when someone has gone that far, you just want to back away slowly. And I feel that I, I do that mentally when I'm watching this movie. Like she is as crazy as most people are in this film. She... I think she takes the cake on this one. She went over the top, down the other side, and tried to come back up. I mean, I, I think it's, I think it, again, it works perfectly well with the tone of the movie. And yeah, it's early on in her career, but I think she was already quite well known and thought of to be one of the best actresses of her generation, but maybe not quite as um, known from a film perspective, more like on stage, I think. Well, she's also, a lot of her early career is a reaction to not wanting to be her sister. And and she she tended to go for I think more extreme uh, stuff like this because Lynn uh, Lynn Redgrave uh, is this more kind of she's a Georgie girl and it was just more kind of like an accessible mm-hmm. career right. I wish we had a uh, a lady on this podcast to kind of come at this from because I don't think it's a flattering. Now most peep characters in this film the film is not flattering to any of them except for perhaps Grandier but. Well, and Gemma Jones's character too. She's really the only. Oh, I guess I guess she's almost the normal person in the film. Yeah, she's yeah. kind of the naive. I guess she's naive, uh, or played at least in a counterbalance. Both of the scenes with her and Redgrave are fantastic. Um, uh, the first scene 
where Redgrave is just haughty and superior to her. And then the second scene when she attacks her, she knows that, that this has happened and it, it's just not pretty, the confrontation uh, between the two. Well, I just want to get back to Oliver Reed for a second. He's, uh, he, he's kind of known for, well, a variety of things. His performances are usually kind of big. I, I really love him in this movie again. I think it's one of the, his best performances that I've seen anyway. Another thing I read was that um, Russell is not really known to be an actor's director. So with Oliver Reed, he really just gave him one of three commands. He said, Moody 1, Moody 2, or Moody 3, meaning I want kind of a you know a normal Oliver Reed mood, then I kind of bring it up, and Moody 3 was just do whatever the hell you want. And you can tell in this movie when he's told him Moody 3, there are moments where you know that he's just said, all right, Oliver, do whatever the hell you want. And I, I, I love those moments. He gives them some big, like, good movie speeches, and, and often movie speeches are kind of not my thing like it's just a little bit overly much but he has a couple good ones and even in his kind of when he's not necessarily monologuing but when he just has like one big line in the movie when he says i could never be satan's boy i just yeah yeah, the word yeah but just the way that sentence plays out is is quite i think my favorite scene from him was the scene in the um when he's taking confession and and that definitely had that that level of like absurd humor to it as well yeah um in this, and like, the fact so, that like, they've taken the confessions just out in the open. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> like, they, they haven't come up with the innovation of the little box. Yeah. That's all. And he yells at... There was a pillar there, Matt. Come on. He yells at the baby to, like, keep it down when the baby starts crying. Well, and that's what makes it funny, because the speech he was... Because he's actually blowing off this other woman. And, and right before he's blowing off this woman, he was talking to Gemma Jones, and, and he says something like, if God wants you to suffer... You should want to suffer, and you should accept that <laughs> gladly. Like, and yet he's pissed off that like a baby is crying in the church. Like, that's definitely before he's um, you know come into his own spiritually. He's a little petulant. <laughs> a little. So um, I don't know if we uh, should wrap up uh, on the devils. If we want to go around uh, the table uh, with uh, final thoughts or something that we haven't touched upon that you would like to talk about. Um, I think I've covered what I wanted to say. I mean, I liked, I just, I really loved the whole, like, you know, I mean, the film begins with the, what's the name of the sort of major overarching antagonist, the, the cardinal who has the ear of the king. Cardinal Richelieu. Anyway, that, yeah, Richelieu. That character kind of talking about how he wants to bring church and state together. And so that's um, that's immediately, like, the theme of the film. And I just the think that that's just... The terrifying aspect of the whole movie right there. Yeah, and it's it's sort of like the the film definitely has some like still resonates to this day I think with some of the the concepts that it's throwing around. Um, the other thing I want to touch on is some of the imagery, specifically the the wheels with the dead Protestants uh, strapped to them, just kind of like really haunting and but also slightly absurd. It was like a real like we spoke about like Monty Python and had that kind of like Holy Grail like. It's really ridiculous, but also really disturbing and vile at the same time. Um, so, yeah, I just thought that the imagery, some of the imagery was well, really... I, I believe remarkable. the final shot of the film is uh, Gemma Jones, now uh, widow, walking out of a yeah. broken city that, you know, absurdly fell because they were focused on their sideshow. And she's just walking, and you see a bunch of those we- death wheels and, and just an endless road into the wilderness. Exactly. I mean, and you spoke about her being like the one innocent, naive, pure character in the film. I mean, 
again, the, the that image of her, like, a broken woman, her husband's, like, charred bones are being swept away and she's walking out, that really is, like, the loss of innocence. If Like, if, 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 if an ending ever kind of summarised that theme, it's pretty, like, again, on the nose in that in that final shot. Yeah, and the one character like that is the one that now leaves the city. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I love all that imagery, too. It's, it's interesting. I'd read one more thing about Terry Gilliam saying that they weren't actually influenced for, uh, with the Holy Grail from Ken Russell's movie, but he said it's kind of a shame that they weren't. So they're obviously fans of his, but I, I think we all thought that with the Bring Out Your Dad, that, oh, obviously Monty Python picked up on that, but uh, apparently they didn't. I don't think they necessarily picked up on it, but I just think we're now colored in the way that we... No, absolutely. Yes. Uh, yeah. I, I think the only thing I would add to all of this is, because we didn't really touch on it, is um, that the... You know, again, coming back to this idea of a cultural artifact or whatever, the film, obviously, obviously, I'm very glad I saw it. I don't necessarily think I'm compelled to watch it multiple times, but I think just in the sense of viewing it as a kind of uh, ur-text for, you know, there's clearly a lot of it in later Terry Gilliam films, and oh my god, there's a ton of it in Peter Greenaway's stuff. But I I find, my personal taste, I find... uh... Uh, Russell's just unrestrained. Greenaway, he's just being an asshole about it. I just, I just get this. Well, it's yeah. But my personal just, reaction to Mr. Greenaway. Personalities, but I mean, in terms of stylistically, like it, there's, it's clearly been incredibly, you know, influential. Probably more so than any other Russell film that I've seen. Like it's, there's tons of you know pretty strong images in it that clearly filtered out over the next. 30 years of kind of theatrical movie making. Yeah, I, I actually can't wait to see it again, to be honest. And uh, if they, I, I need to find the DVD. If it ever comes up on Blu-ray, I'll, I'll buy that in a second. Um, yeah, I, I want to sort of touch back to one of the reasons why Kurt Schurz chose this being kind of a horror movie. There are definitely not just horrific images in the movie, but just horrific concepts. We already touched on one of, you know, the combination of church and state, the battles between the Catholics and the Protestants, the, the plague, the imagery of the Protestants and the wheels. There's a lot of that that pops up in the movie. There's no, you know, genuine scares. But by the end of the movie, you're, if not terrified or shaken in your seat, you're you're kind of maybe rocking back and forth a little bit. Uh, at least I felt that way, that this was, in my mind, a horror film. I, I don't think Ken Russell sees it that way at all, from what I read. But it, it worked as a horror film for me, absolutely. Politically, uh, if I can uh, bring up the Star Wars prequels, uh, because they should be in context of this. But the the only line I I really like in the entire three Star Wars prequels, as blunt as it is, is the line of "Oh, this is uh, this is the way democracy ends." To thunderous applause, and watching the city of Luden utterly fail to hit what is politically in their best interest in favor of cheap spectacle. I mean, you can apply that to the Romans. You can apply it to modern America. You can apply it to any society for far enough along. And I find that to be the, perhaps the ultimate horrific element to this movie. That's what gets me when I, when I, when I watch it. They have the walls being demolished in this like, like explosion. They have, they have charges and they blow up the walls literally like moments after he succumbs to the flames. So like, and even as I was watching it, I was like thinking like practically that probably wouldn't have happened the exact moment. Like it just didn't kind of, it would kind of seem silly, (laughs) but again, in terms of 
making the point about, like, these people have lost their way, they've thrown away the one person who can help them, and now immediately their downfalls come about. Like, I agree that it's, it's, it's that thing of, like, it's very on the nose, but he really is making that point as hard, like, as forcefully as he can. I, I, I'm the only one who didn't find it horrific. <laughs> I, the, the idea that human beings are awful and do everything wrong is just absolutely what I expect. <laughs> well, if, it's, if the... it's only when they miraculously do something right that I'm horrified. I mean, I do find it disturbing, but there's also an inevitability to it as well. Like, you're yeah. not really surprised that the movie goes in the direction that it does. And no. you kind of know from pretty early on that Grandier is going to lose. Even when the king shows up and kind of, like, reveals the scam, you're kind of, you sort of hope maybe, oh, well, they've been revealed as jesters. It's not going to go any further. But that, that scene doesn't really have any impact. Yeah, it's it just doesn't. the king kind of playing a prank. And then he leaves, yeah. and they go right on with the show. And so there is that kind of, like, I agree with Matt in that sense of, like, human beings are going to do terrible things to each other. They're going to pick the wrong option. They're going to, you know, shoot themselves in the foot. And, yeah, the film never leads you to believe that things might end up okay. Well, Kurt, you know what? I'm also I'm also on record in the past as having said that any time more than eight people agree on something, it's clearly a bad idea. <laughs> yeah. So that reminds me of one other thing, and before and then I'll and then I'll sum up on my side. But the other thing is they do set up in the first act Grandier making as many enemies as possible, and the scene that the eight people agreeing on something is done in like a, a strange like football huddle. Um, I. I find the scene in Stanley Kubrick's The Shining where Jack Nicholson is up against the freezer door and the camera's oh, yeah. looking up at him, it's rarely used in film. So anytime I see that kind of shot, it always yeah. and it, and it's always a prelude to madness. <laughs> like that that scene can only and and you get all of them, the Baron, the Exorcist priest. We never talked about that uh that great faced uh, Father Mignon, the 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 uh confessor for the for the ursuline um coventry uh and the two doctors who have been spurned by grandier and so he's made as many enemies as possible and they are the eight people that agree on something and it it ends pretty badly for for almost everyone but i guess my my final thought on this movie uh is it's fascinating that um the sexuality of men in this movie or grandier's proclivities that eventually lead him or put him on the path intentionally or not intentionally towards enlightenment. And then that is utterly contrasted with the sexual proclivities of the women in the film that only leads to like a pain sensuality. Like when Oliver Reed is killed at the end of the movie, his pain gets him to nobility. When the women are tortured and whatever in this movie their pain is manifested in sexuality only a man would write that (laughs) as opposed to a woman so for all of its kind of maybe progressive or controversial things that the devils does it still kind of reinforces some pretty ugly gender stereotypes not to turn this into a women's living class but not to not to segue too hard into the next film but i actually (laughs) think that's the linkage both films seem like they're really about women but holy mackerel are they misogynist in their own way like
Okay, so well then that that segues into possession and as easily or as clumsily as I tried to summarize the Devils, I think possession is <laughs> much harder to summarize. I know on my first viewing, I don't even know what I watched. Plot-wise, as best as I can tell, uh, a very young Sam Neill is working in West Berlin, presumably as some sort of spy, uh, and he comes back from wherever he was spying, probably East Germany, and he finds his wife at the doorstep of their apartment, clearly ready to break up with him for reasons that he doesn't understand. Um, so they immediately set to fighting about that. She remains irrational. He just wants logical answers, even though he's flipping out himself. Uh, she find, He finds out that she has not one other lover, but possibly... A second other lover, which isn't even human. I was going to say one and a half. <laughs> and, uh, but basically, the movie is the evolution or devolution of both of them as they fight with each other. Just how mean and brutal and hysterical a couple can fall apart. And, it, and much like the devil's Andrzej Zulowski does not restrain any scene in this movie. This is possibly the least restrained movie I've ever seen, period. It morphs into a horror movie for a while, or a creature feature, and then possibly an action movie by the end, before becoming a (laughs) science fiction apocalypse. So you are getting kind of a multi-genre movie, but at its heart, it's a relationship uh, collapse. And uh, so yeah, let's uh, go around the table again, and uh, tell me what version or how you saw this movie and uh what you thought of it so yeah so for me again the first time i'd seen it and certainly requires a bit of processing i'm it sort of defeated me in like a plot sense in terms of what is going on kind of difficult to follow in terms of like what where a character's headspace is in any given scene then the next scene it could be completely different the thing that kind of kept me in the movie was the relationship element obviously the film has horror elements and certainly has body horror kind of a Cronenberg it reminded me of The Brood in a lot of ways I guess I wasn't a huge fan of the film a film just purely because I don't think it quite works on a relationship collapsing level because it feels like the relationship is already like we come into the film and it's already collapsed but I'm um, probably get more into that after other people talk about their experiences with like viewing. Uh, yeah, it was my first time seeing it as well. Um, saw it on YouTube, unfortunately, so I couldn't track down a copy. But I, it was over two hours, so I don't think much was cut from it. I gotta say, I, I love this film as well. Uh, do I fully understand it? No, I, I didn't really worry about that though. I think at some point I just kind of gave in to the way that everything was being expressed. The absolutely not just melodramatic, but the super melodramatic way that all the scenes were done. I mean, it's it's essentially about divorce, a really, really bad one, as two people actually destroy each other and then sort of build up almost their perfect images of what they wanted from the other person by the end. Uh, and also just the way that the term possession sort of comes in and out in different ways, you know, with, with the walls of Berlin, with the way he wants to get all his questions answered from her, there, there's so many different aspects that, like that that it's just something I think I could chew on for many, many moons, and uh, I enjoyed the crap out of it. 
Ironically, the film is going to play in Toronto in about a week. Uh, and I actually am probably going to go back and see it a second time uh, in, a, in a decent print on a big screen. I, I think I also saw a fairly complete version. Now, I did see it on, on DVD, uh, and I will say that, at least in the version of the DVD that I had, the transfer itself is rough. Like, it, that movie does not look particularly sharp or good. Was the so aspect I ratio... I, I think I know the DVD you're talking about. Was the aspect ratio not perfect? Like, it was a little stretchy? No, that seemed okay. It just was like very low resi kind of looking, uh, um, and and to the point where in the op- there's that opening scene where he gets out of the car, the car drives up, he gets out, he's got his bags, and in my head I thought this looks like a cut scene from GTA Four, like it's they're all kind of blocky and like they're very anyway. I got I got past it almost right away to just to the content of what was happening, but but, but it was it's not a great. Um, transfer of the movie. I think the thing that struck me, just thinking about it afterwards, is I mean, it is obviously his reaction to his own divorce, and when I said, uh, you know, I wasn't really even being facetious when I said, this guy's a misogynist, he hates women. Um, he does. He, if you Like, the thing that struck me really strongly is, this is a movie by a guy who does not understand why the fuck his wife doesn't love the shit out of him. <laughs> and he just is fucking mystified that any woman could have agency and go, I don't really, no, this, no, not for me, sorry. And so his assignation is, well, she's obviously screwing an alien thing. That's, there's no other reason. Like, I think he literally, you know, on some level, he's like, her actions are random because fuck yeah, it's random. Listen to how she's treating me. And, and it also fits really interestingly for me between um, one year earlier is Kramer versus Kramer, and one year later is the Jim Thompson, Linda Thompson album, Shoot Out the Lights. <laughs> and as three completely different accounts of divorce, it's just kind of fascinating for me. I, I love the way you brought in Shoot Out the Lights. I, I have to think about that. That's, that's, a, that's a nice trifecta right there. It, do you know what I'm saying? Like it, they, they all, in their own way, are about almost the, like the, the hangover from... Uh, the sexual revolution of 15 years earlier, where now people are in these marriages that are clearly based on bad ideas, and they're and they're getting out, and everyone's getting out and trying to deal with it in their own way, and it's essentially uncharted territory because people didn't, you know, people who were getting divorced in the late 70s, early 80s, were doing it out of marriages that weren't being put together for the right reasons in the first place. I, I think he he. Absolutely can be termed misogynist. I don't think he gets away scot-free either, though. It's not completely one-sided. He is, Neil's character, I mean, he descends as well. He's absolutely not a perfect guy. I mean, the way he is trying to rein her and possess her as well is is not exactly a ringing endorsement of the perfect husband. Yeah. Yeah, no, true. They certainly both murder people on top of yeah. their other myriad sins. Yeah. Um, there's no one in this movie that you would perhaps want to spend time with, but the person you would least want to spend time with ever is Heinrich's character, the, oh, the, the savvy, bare-chested guru. <laughs> I... I guess I, I I, I'm going to flail my arms Heinrich. for the rest of this episode. <laughs> yeah, I, I cannot get enough Heinrich. Every <laughs> second of that dude is you, amazing. You cannot get enough Heinrich watching it on film. If if you had to deal with him in real life, <laughs> I, it might be a different story. Uh, I, I want to be him for Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> 
I I came into this um, film fairly late. I only saw it in 2012 because I I read this great book, which I encourage everyone to read, uh, by Kayla Janice, uh, called House of Psychotic Women, and it is a like it is a collection of horror movies that deal with you know women as being hysterical, being the the main core of the the horror film or whatever. Not surprisingly, Possession gets the cover of the book. It, there's actually a really wonderful poster of um, the because uh, Zulowski's Polish and and the Polish tend to make pretty good movie posters. And the movie poster that's on the cover of this book is it's almost like a just a, a simple line drawn with um, a, a naked woman with her hair like Medusa snakes, and the Medusa snakes are fondling her. It, it's it's a very provocative cover. Uh, and anyways, uh, the book is fantastic, and you should read it. But uh, that that's what pointed me in the direction of this uh and then the blu-ray came out and i will also be there at lightbox uh, i'm happy uh that it's screening in toronto in montreal a few years ago they had a 35 millimeter print of its screening but it was dubbed into french with no english subtitles so it's kind of a not the not the best and the print was even rougher than the transfer that you're describing on that dvd but anyway uh i find myself compulsively watching this movie often and I I'm not I'm not <laughs> entirely okay? sure why because it's kind of a it's a movie that you for me it does drive me to distraction when I watch it there are stretches of the movie that are boring's the wrong word but they're just so at odds with each other that it just mm. feels like he's throwing random stuff at the camera well Bob and I were actually together last night and we started kind of talking about it a little bit. And one thing that came up was it is pitched as a melodrama, but one of, one of my uh, sort of sticking points with it is that I actually, I'm not entirely convinced that Sam Neill's a good enough actor to actually pull off that high level of, of sort of performance where he's pitched way up high. For most of well, the first half of the movie. I, I don't know. I mean, the bulk of Sam Neill's career is playing guys that are just absolutely nuts. I mean, I imagine that this movie was the movie because it came out early enough uh, in yeah. his career that got him, you know, parts in like John Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness and, and uh, Event Horizon. And, you know, and I mean, he just kind of... You know, he he does appear in Artier Fair, like the piano and 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 various different things. But he loves to be in these just kind of off the rails genre movies. Uh, I mean, he started his career in that in that Roger Donaldson's uh, what was it? The, it's like Sleeping Dogs or whatever. Like it's an apocalypse movie. Yeah, um, yeah. It's just it's a technical thing. But the, the although he does do stuff that's pushed out really far to the edges, he, he doesn't necessarily do. There's a certain amount of just acting technique that you need to bring to something where you're essentially shouting well and this movie has i don't know that he has it yeah i I don't disagree with you matt but at at the very least i think he's consistent in the movie in his in how he pitches it really high and over the top right from the start i i felt the same way as you matt where i i didn't know what he was doing yeah i thought oh it's early sam neill he's he's not really seasoned but he stayed consistent all the way through the movie. 
And I, I kind of appreciated that. I, I like the fact that he had that same high-pitched tone all the way through. And by the end of it, I, I think it worked fine. Uh, but at, at the outset, I was a little worried about him. The actress in the film is... Yeah, I think she is so compelling. Go for broke. She, she, like, whenever she's <laughs> yeah. on screen... She's, she's and, so much better than he is. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I'm not going to disagree with that at all. But well, the, the the dynamic they set up is that she is trying to run away, and he just wants to know what that he doesn't even know how to behave. Like he, she's the avoider, and he's the child. I mean, even though they have a, a young son in the film, but I, I mean, I don't think that's so unique. At the risk of sounding misogynist myself, I don't think that's such a unique situation. Um, like his. His attempts at rationality are more not rational. They're, they're, they're more like he's pissed off and he wants to hurt in his own way. Like there's a scene early, like that lovely scene in Cafe Einstein uh, where they're sitting at tables with this mirror bridging the two. I don't know if that's the hide the film crew, or but it's a great image anyway. Um, and they're both talking they're not away. facing each other. Yeah. They're talking away from each other. And if you listen to what he like, if you're not stunned by that rather unique framing, and you listen to what Sam Neill's saying, he's basically, well, fuck it, I'm not being a weekend dad. I'm 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 out. Like I'm not even doing a damn thing. And I don't think he means that, but I just don't think he knows what his role is. He doesn't know what to do. Yeah. And and I think that that may translate into you thinking Neil is not up to snuff when it comes to acting because the character has to look so unflattering in a primal male way like that that sort of impotent emotional confusion that he doesn't he can't even own it he he just lives in a state of denial of his raging kind of emotions so i i think that's ugly to see maybe from another guy watching it um well i thought he was pretty pathetic at times too right i mean he's it's not that i felt sorry for the guy it's just kind of He's like stomping his feet like a child. Like the like the yeah. child is a really good way of describing it. Yeah. Plus, I have to say, I, I don't know if you guys picked up on this or not. There are a lot of scenes early on in the movie, and the movie is clear. It's so clearly from before you ever see the creature or any of the sort of like the really outre stuff. There's this horrendous sense of dread that permeates the first half of this movie, and then he keeps putting the kid in the bathtub. <laughs> And every time he put that kid in the bathtub, I was like, ah, oh, shit, that kid's going to die in the bathtub. Well, you know, like, it just messes with you because of other movies and, like, having to, you know, every time he leaves the bathroom, I was like, no, go back. And I know what you mean about that sense of unease as well, because, like, it takes a long time to get into the horror, supernatural side of films. It's probably going for like 45 minutes before there's any hint of that. But yeah. there is always something, there's clearly something, just even in the way the characters are behaving, there's just something that's not right, and it is unsettling. Yeah. Plus, it's no accident that Carlo Rimbaldi is credited in the opening credits to kind of let you let you know, well, something's coming. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. The, the, he is the guy who designed E.T., correct? And, and the um, King Kong remake, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, and is, isn't the credit, like, creature effects by yes. or something Cre- like that? Creature designed by. Yeah. <laughs> and you're, I mean, it's not like anyone's watching going, well, they obviously meant Sam Neill. Like, you know, <laughs> like, you, you know that. 
<laughs> yeah, I suppose if they left that credit out, you'd you'd kind of get that audition effect. Uh, if if you've seen yeah. uh, Takashi yeah, Miike's yeah. audition, where for the and this is a big spoiler for audition, but it, it has that where it's a family drama for a good chunk of the running time until it's not. <laughs> and then it's something entirely else. And whereas that movie has its burlap sack, this movie has, I don't even know how to describe it. It's some sort of self abortive birth epilepsy attack. Like that is some serious craziness going on when, uh, Ajani is in the subway tunnel and, uh, oh yeah! Loses okay, her groceries along with uh, a lot of her bodily fluids yeah. uh, against the subway wall. It's that's pretty. We were saying before about how how committed Vanessa Redgrave was to her her uh, <laughs> yeah, sister John role. This. Exactly. I I don't think I've seen anybody do what a Johnny does in this film. Uh, there's rumors that she even tried committing suicide after this movie. I, I don't know if they're true. I mean, I hate to even perpetuate that. But, oh my goodness, especially that scene in the subway tunnel. Yeah. That is phenomenal. It, and I think that's what distinguishes her from Neil as well, because like, they both oh, yeah. get well. the opportunity to kind of flail around at points in the film. But she, like when she's like writhing around on the ground for, like what, a good two minutes, it's utterly convincing and horrifying and compelling. And, and yeah. whenever he's sort of twitching or whatever, I don't, you don't bite at all. That is that is one of those things where you're watching it and initially you're like, huh, this is going on a really long time, and then you're like, no, this isn't going on nearly long enough. This needs to keep going. <laughs> well, yeah, your your mood goes from that's disgusting to that's kind of funny to this is awkwardly continuing, and you you the horror comes later. Like it's not. I don't think it's right at the beginning of that scene. It's because of the scene's length that it becomes yeah. horrific. Yeah. Um, mm. but I guess, um, that's, I don't know if I, if I'm completely accurate to say that that is the real start of the supernatural element. There may be one scene prior. Murder. I think it's, I think you've seen the creature already by that stage. Yeah. Yeah. I think we saw it on the wall before that, but that, I mean, given the, the nature of the film and the structure that could very well get a flashback. It, it's really hard to say at some time. It's hard, it's hard to say whether that scene even actually takes place. Well, I, I guess yeah. that's kind of the delight of this entire movie is that it right. it's taking place in their respective yeah. headspaces. And that's why yeah. the, the tone changes. I love the sequence where there there's a several sequences where she's doing laundry or she's in the kitchen and she's just grinding meat. And it just oh my goes God. on forever. Yeah, I know. And it's it is so uncomfortable. You're <laughs> yes. like, you know something's it's, going to happen yes. with that meat grinder, but it's when yet, and what? Yeah, it's yet another aspect, like the bathtub, like everything else, where you're just like, stop making me so goddamn anxious. <laughs> and again, they had the but view I mean, of the camera looking up at the meat grinder, too. Uh, so. <laughs> yeah, that was hard. That was hard. But it is that thing of like, the tone is so kind of fluctuates that there were like moments where. Like, whether that the con- her convulsing in the subway station is a flashback or not. Like, it did feel like s- there were scenes that could almost have been out of order. Uh, particularly yeah. the ones in the apartment, where a good chunk of the time spent in the apartment, they're yelling at each other, and they're kind of moving from room to room really quickly, and both acting quite bipolar, and avoiding confrontation and arguing and so on. And 
It was very hard. Like, I was confused as to was she still living with him at a certain stage? Like, mm-hmm. you get the, the feeling that months pass in between some scenes. Yeah. But you're not quite sure. Um, yeah, does the, I, I think the kid actually does age. I don't know if it's the same actor or not, but there is a, there's a sense of that. I think that's, again, I think that's by design because it's supposed to be mm. that fluctuating because she has custody of him for a while then he comes home and finds the child very clearly neglected. Forget the bathtub. I find that sequence where he comes home and he's just covered in, you know. In goop. In goop. Yeah. And, yeah. and he's clearly been like that for some time. When was the last time you ate? <laughs> oh, it was weeks ago, you know. Yeah. And and then he actually takes custody over. But it's that when when a relationship melts down ugly, it's that in and out of the apartment dynamic that I think this film really does capture well of – this is my space. No, this is your space. This is my space. And are you going to move your stuff out? And I mean, there is a scene where she starts gathering stuff like as if to move out, but mm. she's just making a bigger mess. And this movie does delight <laughs> in making a mess of, of everything, even as it obsessively focuses on cleaning at times as well. Something I quite like in horror films is when it just takes mundane or banal domesticity and, and imbues it with an abject sense of horror and, I think this movie gets a gold star for that, particularly in the opening yeah. act. As soon as Heinrich and his creepy live-in mother relationship thing uh, <laughs> that they have going oh. on, and and yeah, that starts happening, then I believe the the whole Neil Ajani domestic situation kind of well, it falls off the table. Here's the thing for me with Heinrich and his creepy mother: the rest of the movie does such a good job of being so completely from another planet in a certain way and being so pushed out and, you know, crazy that it actually prevented me from worrying about what would happen to the kid. But, but like, you know what I mean? Like, in a normal, anything approaching normalcy, you'd be like, oh, that kid's going to be so screwed up. I didn't think that once in this movie because everything's so off-kilter and weird, except for Heinrich and his mother, where, for me, that plays like a documentary of all German men. So... <laughs> Aren't they? Don't we suspect they're all pretty much like that? Weird, you know, art school dropouts that live with their mothers and have crazy affectations and like. Did ever ever see the film May? Has anyone seen Lucky McKee's May? No, I'd like to. Um, But there's there's the actress in that. um, Angela Bennett. She dates. Uh, I think it's Jeremy Sisto plays like her boyfriend in that, and Sisto in that it, like likes to watch Dario Argento horror movies, and he makes amateur horror movies, and he thinks that that's going to impress, and it, in a way it does. But Betty's character just goes so much further than where he is that it just makes him look kindergarten by comparison, and I find that you you, you think that a Johnny went to Heinrich, you know, like as a oh he's got this spiritual thing down, or he likes art or you know or, you know he doesn't mind doing recreational drugs or whatever but she so quickly outgrows his little little world and moves on to her headspace which is so far beyond and in, in a way these movies even though they're utterly different i feel like kindred spirits in in that sense um i was gonna say getting back to the sort of surreal aspects of the movie there's a few scenes i think early on where sam kneels in the apartment and he gets a call from heinrich and then when he meets Heinrich, Heinrich says he never called him. There's there's a few moments like that where, getting back to what you were saying before, Kurt, where it's actually kind of 
pretty much in Sam Neill's headspace, where, you know, is that event actually happening? Is that happening in his mind? It doesn't seem to follow the timeline of the movie. So I, I kind of like that about the movie, too, because you're never quite sure was this actually happening in their relationship, what was actually kind of going on, whether it was just, you know, them breaking down or, or what. And that's why Heinrich, I think, was so kind of effective, because he was just always slightly off the beam, and then you realize he's, you know, he's, he's probably drug addicted, but he still has that badass motorcycle as well. I was going to say, there's, there's you know, uh, it seems very much in sync for me with kind of um, a movie like Lost Highway. Like, it's very, like, people throw Lynchian around a lot, but this really does feel very much like, you know, it's emotionally clear, but it's not logically clear what's happening. But there's a certain kind of emotional logic to everything that's going on that makes perfect sense, right? When he meets up with the second, the green-eyed Isabella Johnny, the, the the boy's school teacher in the film. Yeah, I can't believe we haven't talked about the doubles. Yeah, okay, the doubles. Uh, but when he meets up with her, I, I don't for a second believe that the woman that he meets is looks like his wife. I believe he's just... That's the film's way of projecting that on things like I, I I believe that that's where the filmmaker is playing coy with with reality but being true to what you said the emotional reality of the movie and I think that there's several instances where that happens like I do believe that the the scene in the subway with Isabella Gianni I think Tom was right in that it's edited out of order now what the strategy of that is remains unclear to me but I believe that she has that miscarriage that eventually grows into that creature that she's keeping in the other building. But you're right, now that I think about it, they do show a scene of that creature before then. There's the weird dialogue that she has about faith and chance and kind of these long, incoherent monologues to me that seem to indicate that this miscarriage was the creature that she's raising her own baggage or whatever and 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 i think the movie tries to explain that to you in some logical extent yeah there's a lot of logic i mean i think what matt was saying is is, it's more about the emotion i mean she's she's struggling between this faith and chance kind of kind of thing i mean should i just go with this should i actually force the issue do i have faith in my relationship it's this kind of push and pull for her i think that's partially why she kind of descends into this madness call it what you will but you know, even that that monster, that that she, that creature that she grows in her apartment, becomes the doppelganger of Sam Neill by the end, and he's the kind of perfect perfect representation of what she was looking for. Whereas uh, the second Ajani character, the one with the green eyes, the school teacher, has got that very you know virginal white kind of outfit, and she's wonderful when she comes out of the apartment. She cleans it and she takes care of the child. You know, that's his representation of kind of the perfect wife. So they. They both sort of, in this breakup in this, of the relationship, find these doppelgangers to be like, this is what I was looking for, and this is what I you know, kind of aspired <laughs> yeah, to. But when they're two doppelgangers, maybe it's, it's one of these, like, fate is just going to hand you that. When the two doppelgangers get together, they shoot each other. <laughs> like, even the two uh, perfect images can't get along in this movie. <laughs> Well, that's, that's like right at the end when, uh, again, major spoiler, when the, when the boy runs up to the bathtub to kind of throw himself into the water and you hear all those kind of explosions in the background, like it's almost the apocalypse going off when these two doppelgangers meet. It, it's I, I'm not, you know, I, I'd have to see it again to really see what he's trying to get at, but it's sort of this, if these two perfect images actually did get together, 
it's <laughs> it's the end of the world. It's a gate gatekeeper uh, or a key master. We don't want it. You don't want to do that. There's also this I, on a, on a weird level, like when it sh- when he shows up and he's turned into Sam Neil, and you realize, oh, okay, so the end point of this creature, which has been kind of metamorphosing, either either through sex or through eating murder victims or some sort of combination of the two, it's never clear exactly. What the what's progressing his his sort of change towards the end state, uh, at least for me it wasn't. But um, when he shows up and it is Sam Neil, part of what I thought was, and may, I don't know if you guys have had this experience or not. Um, early on in my marriage, my wife said to me, "Oh, I had a dream last night that I was cheating on you with a guy that looked exactly like you." <laughs> <laughs> no, I haven't had that, Matt. So. And I no, but you know what? She's not the only person I've heard that from. I actually think that's more common than you would think, and I, I feel like there's some there's something in there around that idea. Like we we assign the person we wound up with a kind of fatalistic, you know, like well, this is obviously the person. Well, absolutely. So, I, I, oh. I don't know if I'm if I'm speaking out of turn here, or if I'm going to get myself in trouble uh, gender wise, and maybe I'm completely wrong. But it it seems to be the stereotype that when people have a dream and something happens into a dream, the guy just shrugs it off and forgets about it. But the girl blames the guy when she wakes up for something that had nothing to do with him whatsoever. Okay, I might have had that experience. Her anxieties, her anxieties that she now has to deal with and you are the project, you are now the projection of that. And I think that the movie is in some way tapping into this. I think there's no question whatsoever, as good as a Johnny is and as much screen time as she has and everything else, I think the movie is unquestionably about Sam Neill's character and from oh, yeah, the yeah. point no. of view. And that That's... that the director, uh, writer, is far better at articulating the male hang-ups with this than the female. I mean, I, I think it, it's an interesting movie, but it, it's it's undoubtedly a male movie, if that makes sense. Well, it does. It does a whole bunch of stuff, even amongst the sort of illogic of some of it. You know, we've, I've talked about this a little bit on my podcast, but Sam Neill is very good at his job, so you automatically have sympathy for him. He's a very good father. Like he's very attentive. Well, when he's there. And, when he's when he's there, yeah, I, I don't know if I'd agree with that last point. I, I never, I never felt he was engaged at all with his child. Oh, yeah, I kinda... totally disagree. When he's when he's engaged with them, he's very engaged with them. He's angry at her, so he removes himself from the house. But he's all he's always shown to be like super tender with the kid and really like listening to him and like looking him in the eye and stuff. It's very like it's all I think very deliberately geared towards you getting on his side. And I got the feeling that he only did that when he was really kind of forced to. I mean, even just the, I'm not going to be a weekend dad. Like he, he was just kind of, like, he's throwing his hands up. Like, I, you know what? Uh, I'm not even going to do this. He's trying to rationalize and saying, oh, it's going to screw the kid up. But, you know, he never really looks at the larger picture. Um, I don't know, I'd, I'd have to see it again to see if you're right about them trying to bring him into light as a good father. I, I didn't get well, that. From I think it's safe to say that these parents are rather ill-suited <laughs> to be parents. Or what Matt was trying to get at earlier is that 
what is the foundation of this relationship? I, I understand you don't have a lot of early context to, to know, but it, you do feel that the relationship started from a physical sense and it hadn't gotten much richer or deeper than that by the time we get to where we are. That That's the sense well, I get, but maybe I I'm think wrong. even uh, John even says like she didn't even really want the child. I think that's, Another thing that kind of almost possesses her, that forces her to stay there, is that, well, I've got this child, and I have to be this mother character. And that's one of those push-pull things where she doesn't want to stay in a relationship just because of this child. So, yeah, she's not exactly a, uh, a perfect parent either from that point of view. We haven't talked about it, but I'm curious if you have any thoughts about the weird uh, next-door neighbor lady. Oh, is this Maji, the, the friend who Yeah, the despises... one on the crutches. Yeah. I don't know that I have any more thoughts on her necessarily. She was just like another baffling element, like a yet another not particularly likable character in this whole like the in this tale. Um, I think one of the things that I don't know if it has to do with the fact that the the reason I I wasn't able to latch onto the the story as 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 much as some of you other guys maybe is like the like I haven't had the experience of going through this turbulence like really messy like a divorce or a really horrific breakup where you're kind of moving in and out of the same space um that i think you guys i think it was kurt who commented on how it really gets that like dynamic of the apartment sort of down pat that's maybe not something that i can relate to as much and to me i, I did just have that it just seemed really bipolar to me yeah margie was uh was an odd character too i mean but it, it felt like there was either a history between them or there was this, you know, overly antagonistic relationship that was going to eventually evolve into something sexual. Uh, that's sort of the feeling I got from her where it was, it was that, not necessarily a temptation for Sam Neill. It, it was almost like, well, yeah, he's having his affair too. Yeah, but... isn't there a shot with them waking up after having sex with each other in the film? Yeah, I think so, and it's really, but it's really is just like a kind of. It's just there. Uh, well, I, I, I get well, it because the movie's so. They're from, in the same bed, but have they had sex? I, I thought it implied that. I, I just think that yeah, because I assume they had because the film is so relentlessly from Sam Neill's character's point of view. I think in some weird way, uh, he he finds that all the other characters are in some way sexually attracted to him. I think even Heinrich. <laughs> Is sexual? Like, it's just yeah. some stupid male thing of, well, of course I am exuding manliness and and whatever. And I think, I think, and and it's a fascinating thing that Matt mentioned earlier about um, Zulowski being so misogynistic. And I guess my question that I'd throw out is: Do you do any of you think that there is a? Is it really just vitriol that he captured? and project it up on screen, or is there a high degree of self-awareness in the movie? Yeah, I, I would think there's self-awareness there. I mean, that, that's the feeling I got, just because I think the male characters don't exactly come across as, as wonderful either. Uh, I think misogyny is definitely there, but I, I have to think that he's purposely doing that, and he's aware that he's doing that. That this is spiteful at times, but also recognizing that uh, maybe he had one or two things to do with the uh, breakup of his marriage as well. I mean, I think it's interesting as well, like, because when you're talking about something like misogyny, obviously you have such a misogynistic character in Sam Neill. I mean, he even has a speech about how you can't trust women at, 
at some point. So you kind of can't tell him because it is from his point of view and he's kind of like the unreliable narrator. The degree to which, the way in which the women are presented in such a negative light, is that because the film is itself misogynistic or is it just because he views them in this misogynistic way? But certainly I think the two characters played by, I've forgotten the actress's name again, but certainly his wife and then the doppelganger teacher are these very, like, I, I don't think they're particularly positive uh, women. There's the, his wife who has that kind of more agency is this flighty, hysterical woman who kind of, um, you never know what she's going to do from one scene to the next. And then there's the teacher character who's basically uh, this, like, his ideal woman, you know, passive, supportive, even when he's kind of acting aggressive towards her, she's very understanding and kind of laughs it off. And, I mean, I don't think that's a particularly positive depiction either, but I think that's, again, that's probably because it's coming from his from Sam Neill's character's point of view so much. Yeah, I, I, I didn't get... To be honest, I didn't get vitriol out of him. It feels more like bewilderment. <laughs> if that if that makes if that tracks like I think he is angry but it's more out of like even even if you think about it in the terms of like how he portrays Neil's character as kind of not perfect and he definitely you could interpret it as well he's saying that the guys are just as equally to blame but or because they don't know what to do but I think it let's see if I can put this into sort of concise terms but it feels way more to me like this woman is supposed to love me and she doesn't, which makes no sense whatsoever. <laughs> and so I am going to say whatever I can think of because, honestly, I do not get this. You get the feeling that it's stemming from his, like, frustration of not being able to deal with the situation. Well, and I wonder if his, like, self-aggrandizement in his own mind uh, translates into his job because... There's this. It's not a huge element of the film, but he does take a meeting early on in the film where he's like, "I'm ready to retire from this position, and I'm moving on." Yeah. And his employers are like, "But you are the only one that can do this job, and there's no one will deal with anyone but you." It's like this ego. Like that's what you want in an exit interview to say, "Only you can do this." And then <laughs> even and I, I kept waiting for that to become sort of come up again well it does at the end of the film he it's like a weird kind of action chase movie with guys with police officers with machine guns and they and they get to go out like bonnie and clyde like it's still it's still right up until the post-apocalyptic ending it's still playing as a bizarre male fantasy yeah and he and he's he almost comes across this double agent too because he ends up talking to the man with the pink socks Right at the end, it's like, well, wait, I thought that was the guy that you're supposed to be, you know, um, trailing and giving information about. And then at the end, you're talking to the guy. Well, so it, it seemed, again, like he, like he's this perfect double agent spy dude. That funny sequence at the end, and it, it just goes to show, like, the utter lack of restraint on anything. He can't just, like, let the guy walk by in pink socks. The guy has to have a little, like, rock in his shoe that he has to take it off and <laughs> wave it in front of the camera. Not that it really terribly means anything, but, uh, but yeah, yeah. He, has to, he has to really um, <laughs> show well, that. Speaking of uh, lack of restraint, I, I, I love the camera work in this movie, too. I mean, it's, it's almost this controlled frenzy at times, the way it's... 
spinning around. I mean, there's that initial scene where uh, that exit interview where the camera just is almost like a full 360 around that whole group of people. It's always kind of moving. I, I think the uh, the uh, the camera work here is absolutely fantastic. It, it's yeah, and it really reflects. Yeah, exactly. It, it reflects their, their sort of state of mind really well, I think. Like, that chaotic, never knowing how someone's going to react, the constant... Like, again, when they're in, in the apartment, there's this lot of, like, rushing back and forth between different rooms. She'll go into one room, and he'll kind of follow her to try and continue this conversation she's trying to get away with, and the camera work. Yeah, totally. I would agree uh, with that. The uh, I, I think you just can't beat that. Let's just mount a camera on a rocking chair. It's, it's ridiculous, <laughs> but somehow... It seems to work. Like it's just yeah. like, not only is he he and he when he's rocking in that rocking chair, he is rocking. <laughs> like he's practically <laughs> hitting the floor with the back of his head and the camera is going the whole way. It just has that again, uh Doctor Tongue three <laughs> D house of slave chicks thing going on. Plus you you know, we haven't really talked about it, but the way he shoots the apartment that she's keeping for the creature and the way he shoots the creature is, I think it's tremendous. Like, it's one thing to build that thing, but then to design those sequences to use the eyes and to, you know, to light it in that way and, like, get it to have that really icky, squiggly kind of feel to it. I think stuff. it's the like foley. It's... I, I think the foley in those sequences is working over time. It's got that. Yeah. It's almost it's like the they brought in the, the Italians the palette, for that. everything. Well, I also think the, the the that apartment where she where it's set has a really cool to mind like Polanski films. Yeah, yeah. Um, that has that dread, that eerie, and then like all the kind of like this weird aborted evil figure is is like totally Polanski as well. But yeah, well, the, the whole apartment has really... got that cold blue atmosphere to it. I mean, it really almost mm. kind of represents their marriage, right? It's yeah, I think that's wonderfully realized. You mean their their personal the apartment. place where they live? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not not the uh, not the monster apartment. It's it's fun to play spot the separation or spot the doubles in in this movie. It is so apropos that in this year, I, I don't know about the rest of you, but at TIFF I, there were several movies involving doppelgangers, and even at other film festivals I was at, I saw a Japanese film, which was about, like, there's just a lot of films about doppelgangers this year, so it was kind of fun to drop that in, and I, I guess I'm well-versed in the language of looking for that. So when I watched it this time, did you notice even their apartment complex is bisected by the courtyard in such a way that there's two buildings? Um, mm. there's, it's fun to play, and then, of course, each of them have doubles, uh, and uh, I think there's a lot of very Plus, you haven't even you haven't mentioned the fact that it's in Berlin, which is essentially two cities. Exactly, right? it, 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 undoubtedly, right and and not only that, they live looking over the wall, <laughs> like the opening yeah. shot out of the window of the apartment. Not only do you see East Berlin, but you also see guys guarding it. And I don't know, there's just something sinister about two guys standing on the wall looking into your apartment. Like it just. Yeah, that's undoubtedly, and it's not just that Zulowski at the time was going through a divorce, but he was kind of exiled from Poland as well. So I, I have read, and I, I certainly cannot extract it myself, but I've read other takes on the film where a lot of the Heinrich, um, Sam Neill uh, conversations are 
have a political subtext that I suppose if you were in um, Poland in the early 80s, you might get. Or maybe it's just the like very personal to the director. I didn't see any of that when I watched it, but I've, I've heard it brought up before. Or maybe people just want to, because of the, the East and West Wall, they want to layer something on. But anyway, I just throw that out there. Isn't there also a scene, uh, you know, the that one scene where a Johnny is a ballet teacher and she harasses that one girl, makes her cry, and she runs out? That's then a there's a scene, scene later in the movie where, uh, I forget if it was Sam Neill, I think it was the Sam Neill character, showing a gun to this young girl. And I think it was the same girl that ran out of that ballet room. Or, again, maybe it was a double of some kind. I, I don't know how that ties into it, but <laughs> it's, it's... that was a very odd scene that just kind of jumped out at me as like, that girl must have shown up before in this movie. Well, you brought up, uh, or someone brought up the Lost Highway before, and maybe I maybe I can bring up Cachet in the sense that um, both of them involve videotapes dropping at the doorstep. And this movie has Heinrich. I, I believe that that video that he's watching with the ballet is something that Heinrich had shot. And I don't know whether he's just terrorizing Sam Neill, but he, he drops that package off at his door. So then there's this, you're watching something deeply personal with this couple breaking up, and now he's going through her postcards and letters, and he's going through these videotapes, mm -hmm. and I think there is an, I think some of the discomfort of this movie is that you're burrowing through people's exceptionally ugly parts of their being, and, and I, I suppose you're doing it for entertainment value or something, so I don't know if it's as aggressively condemning as Michael Haneke is often uh, in in his films. But I think that, to a degree, that sequence is supposed to play out like that. I, I don't, Maybe I'm unclear on that. But I'll give you that the ballet sequence is... That that scene is astounding. It almost is like in a different movie. It's, it's, it's kind of shot better and it just... I don't know. For for me, that plays out as so quintessentially French. Uh, like the way she's just cruel to them. like the yeah. French seem to specialize in a subgenre where a scene like that would fit. Um, so uh, yeah, there's also that thing where all good-looking French women who are above twenty-five all teach ballet. <laughs> that, that might be it. That might be it. Um, but it is one of the rare scenes where you get. Isabella Johnny's character not utterly hysterical like she she she's in control of her classroom and maybe you disagree with her teaching methods um I, I but but she's acting as a somewhat functional member of society at that point whereas not, no okay, point a cold and vicious one at the time. yeah no point <laughs> elsewhere in the movie is she like that I, I maybe I'm just an idiot here but I got the sense that it was like she was talking to herself in that scene. Like she, she says to the little girl, like no one pushed me this hard. And maybe that's why I failed. It was almost like she was mentally reliving her childhood by now being the aggressor. The, I, and I guess anytime there's relationships and you have children and domestic violence and, and this, you always, there's always a cyclical nature of these things. So I guess, I don't know if it's put in there to, make you understand things any better. It's just another way of showing you iteration in the movie. 
Well, that was a pregnant silence. Uh, should we? <laughs> I have nothing to add to that. That was a perfectly formed thought. Should we wrap up with possession? Is there? Um, should we go around the table uh, one last time? And or is there something very obvious that we've missed? Go ahead, Tom. Um, I'm just trying to think if there's anything else I want to add. I think I think it's sort of covered. I think just for me, the, there's almost like a disconnect between because the tone's sort of all over the map in terms of like well not even the tone as much as like the genre the the genre kind of constantly changing and going back and forth doing this kind of like relationship breakdown and then they never quite married together sort of no pun intended um which is i think why i couldn't quite connect with the film for me i actually thought this was a great pairing of movies because they're both horror movies that i think are horrific without being obviously stereotypical horror movies that are both pitched very high, that are beyond melodramatic, and that just, for me, hit home in totally different ways. Uh, you know, Ken Russell's The Devils, I, I, I love the storyline. I thought it was very clear, the message he was bringing. Possession is something I really have to see again fully. I don't think I'll ever fully really yeah, get it, but uh, as Matt said before, <laughs> it's the emotion that's really big, and I, and I, I love that about, uh, about this film. Uh, yeah, I mean, I would agree. I think I think of the two, Possession is the one that I would, you know, that does stay with me a little bit more, uh, that does kind of go further than just being uh, a curio and is actually like a viable statement on its own. Um, uh, but, uh, but you know, as, as weird bookends of the sexual revolution of the 1970s, they, the films are kind of uh, interestingly paired together, I would say. Yeah, I, I I think I would classify both of these as some of the worst date movies ever. <laughs> like they're, <laughs> they're not like a litmus test uh, movie for uh, for 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 taking things out. But I I the one thing that I love about Possession and that I also love about The Devils is that they are they're dense. They're really dense, and they really. Um, reward multiple viewings and both of them were made well maybe possessions right on the cusp but both of them were made when um cinema wasn't in that home video vcr mode where people could obsessively watch movies over and over outside of repertory cinemas and and i think that um while both of them have gotten a little bit of a kick in the last couple years back a little bit of resurgent they have their defenders and so forth I just find it um, pleasurable to watch a movie that has this much excess but feel like you can watch it again and again and still be extracting things out of it. Like we could do this – we could do this show again in a year and have totally different conversations I'm sure about it. <laughs> It's not a suggestion. It's not a. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's a date, man. Set a date. Yeah, it, it's just one of those things that these movies have. Uh, um, I don't know if uh, I, maybe I'm completely wrong, and maybe that's the, the 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 question I can ask all of you on this. Do you think that there are cinema of today that? Are these movies both of their time? Like like you were saying, they bookend the sexual revolution, but. I don't know if there's anyone making movies this 
like id level <laughs> um but still be in that kind of art house zone um today i, I but I, I could be completely wrong on that i i'd be curious well, to hear the, your thoughts on that the first director that pops to mind if you're talking about that is maybe cn sono uh not necessarily his his last film that that was just that tiff uh which was which was a lot of fun but some of his previous stuff is really he he absolutely goes for it oh, like he, cold fish yeah. Coldfish, exactly. Uh, that goes beyond both yeah. these movies in many yeah. ways. Uh, that's the only one that comes to mind directly, though. I don't know. I, I think there's probably more if you talk about. I mean, possession up. gave me a. Oh, sorry. I was gonna say possession gave me almost a, like a um, von Trier, like Lars von oh, Trier. Yes. Yes. Yep. Yes. Yep. Uh, shades of that, I think. Yep. Um, and maybe, I, I just watched. Any... Uh, Nicholas Winding Refn's uh, film Bleeder, and just in general, I think he's another guy that yes is connected in this way to this kind of filmmaking. Well, I'm I'm happily easily proved wrong in that aspect. There are always <laughs> nutty guys with uh, with some sort of vision being able to realize ex- like a dense success on screen. Um, and uh, with that, I think we will call that a show. I would like to go around the table one more time, uh, and uh, you can um, plug whatever you like to do, or just as, as a bookend to the show, uh, tell people where they can find you in various social media and uh, and writing. I know we did it at the top of the show, but uh, why not? Let's do it again. Uh, so I'm at uh, I'm all I'm all over the place. I'm at moviemezzanine.com, uh, but easiest way to find anything. I, I, I write all over the place, so. Twitter, Tom underscore Clift, and I'm pretty shameless in promoting what, where I'm writing at, on any, on, at any given time. Indeed you are. Uh, <laughs> and I'm, I'm Bob Turbel. I write for Row 3 in Eternal Sunshine of the Logical Mind. I'm at, uh, at the Logical Mind. And currently in October, I'm kind of going through a whole mess of horror movies and writing little... Uh, little bits about each one and screen cap and the crap out of them. And you can actually see in that both clips from Possession and The Devils in your recent one, which is quite excellent. Thank you. That'll be up on row three momentarily, hopefully. And uh, I'm at Matt Movies on Twitter and uh, part of the podcast Mamo. Uh, you can find pretty much everything I do uh, under the umbrella site of Mamo.ca. And as a coincidence to doing this uh, horror-based thing, my most recent uh, endeavor is to re- uh, change my relationship to horror films. So there'll be uh, stuff happening along those lines over the next probably year or so. And again, uh, my name is Kurt Halfyard. Uh, you can find me at uh, Twitch Film. You can find me lurking around Row 3. I... Um, uh, and uh, guesting on various uh, podcasts uh, around the internet. So um, that will be our show today. If you want to be keen, uh, it'll be probably a few months before we get back together. But um, the next episode of the Movie Club podcast will feature two noir films, Sam Fuller's Pick Up on South Street and Joseph H. Lewis's The Big Combo. So I hope you enjoyed this show, and I hope you join us next time. So thank you, every, everyone uh, who participated, and have a great evening. Cheers, fellas.
Hey Tom, I, is it Thursday there? Uh, yep. Yeah, it's Thursday, like two thirty in the afternoon. Okay. I'm just. I mean, I, I'm I'm morbidly curious about how this works on your end. <laughs> <laughs> we used to have Omar come in from Iceland, and he used to do it at like. 5.30 in the morning or something. Where oh, that would have been Jesus. terrible. Yeah, I'm, I wouldn't be... Um, yeah, no. if you guys switch the time around, I'm not getting up for that. I think he was... No. I, it was right in the middle of Iceland's, like, full-on capitalism meltdown, and uh, <laughs> so it was like, you had to stay awake because people might blow up your house. 